Hi, I'm Patty Smith. This is Bert Newton. Hey, this is Karen. Oh, I'm Sam from Liverpool. I'm Carlos from Liverpool. This is Martha Wainwright. Alex from the Orb. And you're listening to a Triple R archive on rrr.org.au. <laughs> The Adams Family is a musical based on the cartoon characters created by Charles Adams. Some of you may be familiar with those original cartoons. Others may be more familiar with the 1964 TV series. Some of you may have even seen an earlier version of this musical that was staged in Sydney and uh, closed, leaving some of its cast and crew, I believe, uh, fighting for their fees from the union. Hopefully this new production, opening in Melbourne at Theatreworks, will have a rather healthier run. Joined in the studio by its director, David Wynan, and actor Liam Dodds, who's playing Uncle Fester. And uh, Liam, I get the feeling you've had to shave your head for the role. I certainly have, yes. A fresh shave this morning, so... Heading into uh, dress rehearsals today. That's dedication in a chilly uh, winter day like this. It is, certainly feeling the cold, especially in Ballarat. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, David, what is it about this musical that uh, that works for you as a production and, and made you want to direct it? That's an interesting question, and, and it was interesting that you were talking about the Grateful Dead before because one of the characters is... Uh, proclaiming his lost youth and the fact that he no longer wears a Grateful Dead T-shirt. So that's a good segue. Um, the show is an interesting show because it uses the characters of the Adams Family and and it sort of has a gothic element to it, but it also has a story about family, about trust, about honesty, about the ties that bind, and, and that is sort of a universal theme that perhaps brings the elements of the Adams family to something that's perhaps relevant for kids and families and people today. Now, uh, it's this particular production, which is on at Theatreworks in St Kilda, presented by the 2016 Graduating Music Theatre Company of Federation University Australia's Arts Academy. That's <gasps> uh, quite a mouthful. Um, so that's the school up in Ballarat? It is, yeah. Yeah. It's the Arts Academy up there. And it's got a pretty strong and healthy music theatre kind of uh, course, I believe. Yeah, we're sort of building our name over the years and got quite a strong uh, alumni of graduates. Uh, heading into the industry. I'm sure David can tell you lots about um, the students that have sort of headed into the industry, doing lots of work currently. So, I probably boast a little more than Liam because I have to teach these poor people. But um, we have graduates in Matilda, in We Will Rock You, in going into Kinky Boots. We, I would say, are one of the top players in the, in the country and internationally for music theatre. And even so that one of our graduates has just been invited to go to Oslo to the Music Theatre International Conference and he's going to be the scholarship winner internationally who will appear in a scholarship for graduates and agents from Germany. So I think we're sort of doing something in little old Ballarat that probably is um, bringing theatre from the little smoke to the big smoke. Yeah, definitely. Well, certainly my friend Bryce Ives speaks very highly of the course up there and the, the, the quality and talent of the students. So uh, that uh, bodes well for the Adams Family musical. Now, what's it like, Liam, playing a, a character like Uncle Fester, who's so well-known in the public mind, whether it's in the TV series of the Adams Family, the later films that we saw a couple of, or even, as I mentioned, the original, the original comics. You've got kind of an archetypal role already established. How do you remake that? How do you claim it as your own? Yeah, it's been an interesting process i mean sort of i'm i'm living up to the people sort of like christopher lloyd and uh the original festers <clears throat> in the tv show um 
but I think something that we've we've gone for with our uncle Fester is is that sort of weird uncle. Um, we've always talked about the fact that everyone everyone in their family has got some sort of weird relative that uh, is a bit kooky and and um, yeah. So Uncle Fester uh, in the show is in a sense the narrator. He's the way into the audience, uh, and so he's very likable, very lovable. Um, has quite an interesting love story throughout the show uh, himself. So I guess sort of bringing. Uh, new elements to him is um, being able to play and, and bring a bit of showmanship to him and uh, we're going for a bit of a, a vaudeville style, a lot of his, a lot of the music references to a lot of that style so it's uh, quite enjoyable. And that notion of romance not only plays out then for Fester but is also part of the central kind of story arc of the musical overall. It's a, it's a romance in which uh, Wednesday Adams who is usually a, a morbid creepy and, and delightfully so young woman, uh, falls in love with a kind of straight-laced young man from a respectable family I believe. That kind of contrast between the, the cheerful darkness of the Adams family and then the 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 romantic through line which is often a, a through line in a lot of musicals how much fun is it as a director to to play off those two different aspects the darkness and the sweetness well it's, it is a lot of fun because the whole element and the whole idea of it is that Wednesday um, has broken with the family tradition and has gone out with the blue-eyed, blonde-haired, Justin Bieber-type boyfriend and much to her parents' horror. So the, it's sort of the reverse that, you know, every parent hopes that they would bring home the college, the Princeton-looking college boy or the boy from Brighton with the bleached hair. And um, her parents are horrified that she did that. So it's it sort of reverses what we think is normal and what that sort of thing of parents' approval or non-approval is about. So she falls in love with the boy and then has to negotiate how she's going to bring this idea to her parents and how the two families are going to meld, which, whether that's culturally or um, ethnically or whatever, that happens, I suppose, for many people and is a universal theme, is that theme of acceptance and will your family accept your life choices? Now, let's talk about the show itself. It's had mixed reviews in various productions overseas. Uh, I know uh, the original production when it was in, I think, out-of-town tryouts before it uh, crossed over to Broadway, uh, Variety described it as a show that was over-crammed and under-focused. Now, the whole point of -of out-of-town tryouts is to kind of fine-tune and finesse a show before it opens. Um, The Sydney run back in 2013 wasn't enormously successful. Um, What are your hopes for this musical? here in Melbourne and for the students involved. Is it, has it been chosen because it works well for the number of students that you have or has it been chosen because it is actually a good musical? Ooh, that's a hard one. Um, sometimes I find that I'm actually casting the musical for the students that I have. So if I have a year with a lot of strong tap dancing, we might do a tap dancing musical. This year had a lot of strong individuals. Um, I think the musical's a lot better than people give credit for. Andrew Lipper wrote some amazing music. The people who wrote the book for Jersey Boys also wrote the book for this. I saw it on Broadway with Nathan Lane when it first opened years ago, and I didn't like it very much. And um, half of the problem was that Nathan Lane came forward, broke character. People were going to see Nathan Lane play Nathan Lane. They weren't going to see the show. The other issue is that people expect to see... Rob Aston, John Aston, John Aston and um, Carolyn Jones, the original 
people from the 1964 TV show. So they're expecting that. If they're not expecting that and they're happy to go for the ride and go with the Chazism characters or the Charles Adam characters... I think it's a really great show and it's got some fantastic music. I think it's really evolved. So when it opened on Broadway, they realised it wasn't going so well. They rewrote it for a tour and then that tour production went to Sydney in Australia and I think half of the reason that was not so successful was they put it in a very big 2,800-seat theatre. They didn't do enough publicity. They perhaps didn't have enough household names that wanted to see it. And people were confused with the marketing of the film versus the musical. So I th- there's been a lot of refinement since then and Theatre Works is an eccentric space. St Kilda is an eccentric suburb. Um, we have lots of young, kooky actors. It will be a really enjoyable ride and I'm sure that people will just laugh the whole time through. And in, as you say, in a, uh, Theatre Works is an eccentric space, sometimes a challenging space to work in for, for smaller theatre productions given the, the depth of the venue and the, and the height of the, of the ceiling and so forth. But it, I've also seen it used so superbly over the years by kind of indie companies, so I'm looking forward to see how the show fits into the space. Uh, Liam, I wanted to ask you a little bit about your career in music theatre. You've, I know, you were... Um, are we allowed to call you a child star? I guess, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Because uh, you, uh, you won a Green Room Award for your performance in Billy Elliot as yeah. Michael, who's Billy's kind of like childhood best friend. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so, and then later in life, you've gone on to study music theatre. So which came first? Getting cast in a show and going, hey, I really like this, I'm going to go and study this and make a career out of it, or a love of music theatre and, and the stage from the get-go? Uh, I was doing a little bit of performing and, and things like that beforehand. I was doing acting classes, things like that. Um, <clears throat> Billy Elliot actually came along as a bit of a fluke in a way. Um, I found a, an article in the newspaper advertising auditions, um, and so I sort of just went on the limb of not really knowing what was going to come of it. Uh, and so it was a bit of a shock, uh, to, to be cast in the show and it was one of the most amazing experiences uh, I've had the opportunity to be a part of but I think from that point on I realised uh, that it's where I fitted in um, I had done lots of sports and things when I was younger uh, I'm the polar opposite to my brother who is a sports fanatic uh, and you know it, it was a passion of mine and so I knew that I had to pursue it in some sort of a way um, I unfortunately hit the puberty stage of my life and so didn't end up doing um, a lot over those years just because the industry sort of wasn't allowing for that uh, and then it came to the end of my my uh, high school studies and I knew exactly where I wanted to go so it's just sort of ended up in Ballarat. And um, Federation Uni Australia's Art Academy how kind of tell us about the I guess the atmosphere there and the support for you and the other students is it a really strong collegiate kind yeah, of because I, I think it's somebody who hasn't studied theatre, music theatre, and so on. Can, the only preconceptions we have are shows like Fame, for example. For so, sure. can you expect it? Oh, uh, yes. Okay. Uh, for radio is not a visual medium. David just started shuddering quietly <laughs> off air, um, uh, but. Uh, so obviously you're not walking down the street and bursting into song. But what it is? What, what's it like? Oh, well, okay, maybe you are. Uh, what's it Some like to study uh, kind of music theatre with a group of people who are passionate about the art form yeah, and definitely. want to learn both technically and emotionally yeah. about the craft? So I mean, I think the great thing about Ballarat is we are a small community. Um, we are a rural area, and we are uh, we're quite close together. We're a small arts academy, uh, and. 
something that I think that not a lot of the arts academies in Australia offer is is the versatility uh, with the streaming of classes. Uh, there's a big support group in terms of uh, what level you're at, uh, and it sort of highlights the the strengths of of each individual uh, and allows the student to create their own performer uh, over the three years of their course so I, I think that's something that I was drawn to with the course um, I wasn't I wasn't being made into this model that I was going to be this one set chorus member essentially uh, and that I could explore different things and what worked for me um, whether it be personality look things like that uh, sort of create your own branding without having it forced into you, I guess. And David, how important is it uh, to allow the students to, to develop an individual skill rather than trying to fit them into a, a performance mould? Look, I think it's really important. One of the things I like to instil in the students is there's no job too small, no job too big. So one week you can be wearing a sandwich board, the next week you can be on Broadway. It, it ha- You have to be that diverse and you have to rethink. Um, you know, for example, I've never not worked in the industry but I've been everything from choreographer director academic events producer uh, singer DJ I've done many things because you have to evolve as the industry changes and especially now as technology changes so I try to foster that in the students and let them be individuals. So some of the students that are currently in this cohort may become writers, may become producers. Some of them will enter into the world of cabaret or freelance work. So I think we've got to allow for that, that not one mould fits everyone. And and it might be that they're studying music theatre, but in reality it's music and theatre. So whether they are going to appear in The Sound of Music or they're going to become Tim Minchin or develop indie records I think it's all relevant and I think they could all do it from what we're offering The Adams Family the musical is on at Theatreworks in St Kilda from uh, uh, previewing tomorrow night, Friday the 17th of June and then the season running from Saturday the 18th until Saturday the 25th of June. You can book at theatreworks.org.au or by calling 95343388. It's presented by the 2016 Graduating Music Theatre Company of Federation University Australia's Arts Academy. So a whole bunch of very talented people who've been studying up in Ballarat for the last three years. Uh, and uh, a strong cohort of performers. We probably don't have time to to mention everybody in the show, but I'm sure they're all equally talented. Uh, We've been chatting to the director of the show, David Wynan, and performer Liam Dodds, who's playing Uncle Fester in the Adams Family musical. Guys, thanks so much for joining us here at Triple R. Thanks, man. Thank you. Over the next few weeks on this program, we're going to be talking arts policy, which I'm going to do my damnedest to make it sound uh, slightly more exciting than it is. If you don't work in the arts sector, then you may wonder what the importance and the value of arts policy is. Um, uh, I think one answer to that question is the 
the the attacks on the art sector that have been made over the last couple of years by the coalition, which have seen hundreds of millions of dollars cut from uh, the broader arts and cultural sector, which has affected uh, community radio, as we know, by the attacks on digital radio, which have directly impacted on the arts, uh, which contribute something like 50 million uh, to the national ecology. And over the last, uh, kind of particularly last year, we saw raids by the coalition on the Australia Council, uh, which this year has resulted in um, over 50 arts organisations, established healthy, successful organisations losing funding uh, because that money is no longer there for the Australia Council to distribute. So arts policy matters because it underlies a government's approach to securing and stabilising a healthy arts sector. Joining me this week for the first of a series of conversations around arts policy, uh, the member for Melbourne, uh, the Honourable Adam Bant MP, who is uh, the arts spokesperson for the Greens. Adam, welcome. Hi, Richard. So, uh, in terms of arts policy, uh, you took part in the National Arts Debate last week, hosted by Arts Peak at the Wheeler Centre, um, where you talked about a broad range of commitments to the arts. Overall, the Greens have promised $270.2 million for the arts to date. Um, why is it important uh, for, the, for the Greens to have a detailed arts policy? Why does it matter? Well, as... You said um, in your introduction, if you look back over the last couple of years, you can see that governments can do a lot to support um, the arts but can also do a lot to damage the arts, especially when they've got a pretty narrow view of what counts as arts and culture, and that's what we've seen under this government. If you go back, um, just a little bit of history first, if you go back to the first Tony Abbott budget, um, uh, just before that budget, the Australia Council was getting ready to give out for the first time ever um, grants of six-year durations to some small and medium organisations and some individual artists, and that was really significant because it was going to provide some long-term security for a lot of people working in the arts and culture sector in Australia, and it was the first time that had ever happened and then um, on uh, without any notice or any suggestion that there was anything wrong with the way that we were funding arts and culture in this country the government came in took over a hundred million dollars out of the uh, out of the money going to the Australia Council essentially for George Brandis who was the arts minister at the time for his own personal vanity project and they ripped the money out and put it into a slush fund so that George Brandis and the government could decide um, they could dole it out to essentially to the kind of people that they thought counted as real art. And so um, in all of that, the uh, major performing arts organisations weren't touched um, and, in fact, they stood to gain potentially a bit extra if some of the some of the money um, that George Brandis put in his own slush fund was able to go to them. And we saw the axe fall on the small and medium organisations. Um, so uh, they, we campaigned pretty hard over the last couple of years and we got them to put some of that money back into the Australia Council, but not all of it and as a result there are a lot of people who are now facing an uncertain future and sadly we've also lost funding to a lot of the national peak organisations like the National Association for Visual Arts for example. They're, they're now um, going without uh, the kind of government funding that we'd expect. So um, 
how we what governments do for the arts is critically important to people's security. So the Greens um, want to do a couple of things. One is we want to restore money coming through the Australia Council um, and not being politicised because I think when you have governments deciding and individual ministers deciding what they can't think as art, you get artists who start producing art that they think the government likes or that the government will fund. And that's a pretty bad space to be in. Like It should be that artists produce work and that you have a peer-reviewed process for um, doling out funding and doling out support. So we want to depoliticise it in that respect, but also um, increase the funding going to small and medium organisations. So the Greens would double the amount that would restore the cuts, and reverse the cuts and double the amount going to small and medium organisations and individuals because um, that's really, I guess, if you want to call it the engine room, the engine room of um, arts and culture in Australia. Now, the question is, how will you do that? You can make these promises, but to quote uh, the arts uh, academic Sasha Grishin from uh, the Sydney Morning Herald, Herald not too long ago. Uh, he says, the Greens, while great on rhetoric, have no possibility of forming government. They may hold the balance of power in the Senate, but unless they threaten to block supply if their arts policy is not adopted, which they have no intention of doing, they are essentially shooting blanks that can impress but can achieve little. How do you respond to that? Well, we've found over the years that part of our role in Parliament has been to advocate for things that at the time the, uh, the old parties rail against and block us marriage equality is a classic example and then we find fast forward five years and they're clamouring to take ownership of it and uh, we're in, I mean everyone deserves a voice and part of our role in Parliament is to be the voice for the arts and culture sector and especially the small and medium um, sized organisations so that we can uh, reverse some of these decisions and we've been successful in the past we joined with the uh, with the community radio sector to fight off the first round of cuts and we managed to get that decision reversed um, when that came in the first budget. And so I think by standing up in Parliament and working with the community, we can actually change what the others do. Um, secondly, you know, the, um, uh, the, th- that criticism can be made. But then on the other hand, you've got our treasurer out there at the moment doing his own very mediocre videography and producing advertisements that say the Greens have too much power and we're in the process of... and that we're able to determine what happens in um, national parliament and you've got a preference that's last and get us out of there. So uh, I think everyone's entitled to their, their their rhetoric and the commentary, but our track record um, on what we've achieved in Parliament has been pretty good. Now, to come back to some of the specific points in the Greens arts policy, um, and one of the things that impressed me, I have to say, was that it, it felt like a policy. It felt like a broad-ranging series of uh, ideas embedded deep within culture to advance culture and the arts, rather than a series of just election promises. Uh, one of the... One of the areas that uh, you have announced more recently after the the first round of announcements, you made some additional announcements focused around the idea of helping artists make a living. Let's talk about some of those policy details. Yeah, look, it's pretty tough to make a living as an artist um, or working in the creative sector, as many people know, and um, in some ways it's always been the way, but what we've seen over the last couple of decades is increasing casualisation of work. More and more people are on short-term contracts or in casual jobs, and so if you're working in arts and um, culture sector, uh, you feel it even more acutely. And I guess most or many artists would say that they get their income sort of from three sources. You might make a bit of money out of your work, out of your artistic practice. Um, You probably do a bit of 
paid work in another job. Um, and then thirdly, you might be getting unemployment benefits along the way as well. And what uh, the Greens want to see is that for, for those people who are getting unemployment benefits to supplement their income, um, that uh, the obligations that you have to do, the Centrelink obligations that you've got applying for jobs, going to training courses and so on, that, uh, that should be expanded to include artistic work that has a public benefit so that um, if what you're doing is... Uh, um, practicing your craft to make yourself, I guess, more a better artist or more employable, if you want to use those words, in the future, then um, that should count. So, for example, um, putting on a uh, you might you might do a gig at the local cafe that you don't get paid for, but helps you perfect your skills. You might write something and publish it and make it available to the broader public, but you don't necessarily get paid for it. That should count towards your activity test for the doll because what you are doing is probably in some ways, you know, it's better than sending off a dozen job applications for a cafe for jobs that aren't there. Um, it's better than going on a training course in some ways that isn't necessarily going to make you more employable. So um, we want to see that count for um, for the for the doll but also at the other end, I guess, of, of artists' lives. So many people are living close to a hand-to-mouth existence during their life and then you find yourself at the end... Um, probably without a lot of a nest egg put away. And uh, if uh, and that's especially the case with superannuation, it's especially the case with women. And so what we'd like to see is um, if you've met, uh, if you're on a low income, but you've been working as an artist during the course of a particular year, doing that kind of creative work that we just spoke about, then the government should kick in and top up an additional $500 for superannuation for you for that year. Now, not a huge amount, um, but hopefully over the years it would build up and it might mean that people at the end of their lives have, have a little bit of a nest egg there um, to retire on, given that they have been working and providing benefit to the community for their lives. Now, in terms of the broader Australian public who may think of the arts as unimportant, the kind of people who will complain about their tax dollars being spent on the art, why can't artists uh, kind of pay their own way? Um, what's your response to that kind of argument? I think but artists are, and like people are doing that at the moment. And um, for for the question about the doll, for example, I mean, you um, when you go and talk to a job service provider and they list you your um, your program and your acts that you got to do for some of those things, volunteer work counts now. So if people are accepting that volunteer work for an organisation counts and that's a public good, then so should art. So um, I don't I don't think that's a very controversial proposition. And uh, people are paying their own way, but we've got to. Ignore Knowledge that there's a um, pretty big burden on um, on artists at the moment. I, I was shocked, for example, to find out that there are many artists whose work is being exhibited or used in public institutions um, and they're not getting paid for it. They might have got paid for it originally. You know, when you take out the cost of your materials, you might not have that much left in your pocket at the end. Um, but then the institution often gets to keep it or reproduce it and um, artists aren't being paid fees. So for those who say, uh, well, that artists and, and people working in the cultural sector should pay their own way, I guess I'd say, look, people are doing a lot of unpaid work and not getting rewarded for it. And um, one of the things that we want to do is make some money available to cultural institutions so that they can pay fees to artists when they're displaying their work.
One of the other policy platforms, uh, there's quite a few that caught my eye. There's the Artist in Residence program at Parliament House. I'd love to see some of the work that would result from that. Um, but the notion of providing $1 million uh, to Tourism Australia to promote Australian art around the world, uh, that, uh, again, struck me as an intriguing idea because we've already seen a bit of a focus through the Catalyst Fund, which is the the, uh, the Coalition Slush Fund for the Arts, as it's been dubbed by yourself and, uh, and Labor as well. Uh, that there is a key uh, focus there on cultural tourism and the value of promoting art overseas. Why is that uh, a platform for the Greens? I think there's there's a big question about how we want to be perceived around the world and a big discussion. And at the moment, you know, what do we want to sell the rest of the world in 15 years' time? How do we want to be understood as a country at the moment? Really, probably the answer is coal, maybe a bit of uranium, and we'll be perceived as the world's quarry. And we really don't have um, much of a plan as a country for what we're going to do when the rest of the world tells us to stop digging. And um, we talk about tourism as important for Australia, and meanwhile we're in the process of destroying the Great Barrier Reef through climate change and um, not not doing what we need to to, to protect that. Um, but uh, I would like Australia to be seen... Uh overseas as a creative country and part of the reason that people would want to come here is not only for our natural beauty but also for our creative beauty as well and I think it's part of I mean you look at the um, the lonely planet now for um, for the hard copy for people who still buy the hard copies the um, the Melbourne lonely planet your front front page of the lonely planet is artwork from Hosea Lane um, and I think there is an increasing sense that that uh, and it's one of the most visited places when people come here and I think there's an increasing sense that um, a Australia, uh, that might be a reason to come and visit Australia. And so um, getting instead of doing what the government's done, which is take money away from artists and put it into the Department of Foreign Affairs, we say, look, let's just give Tourism Australia the job of specifically um, selling to the rest of the world what's going on here in the arts and culture sector. And particularly in the small to medium sector, we know that the small to medium companies statistically are touring internationally at a far greater number than the the Australian major performing arts groups. And, and this is the thing that, that's most objectionable about the way that the government cut funding because, as I said, it didn't... I, I'm, I'm thrilled at the way that the arts sector, in response to George Brandis, didn't divide itself and presented a united front. I think that was just great. But um, what, what happened was that they didn't cut funding to the majors, but they cut funding to the smaller medium. And at, during the campaign and the Senate inquiry that we initiated, the more you dug into it, the more you realise it's actually the small and medium companies who are reaching out to most people in this country. And um, they, I'd love to see a, an analysis of um, subsidy per person reached if, uh, if you compare the bigger players to the smaller players because my sense is that it's the smaller players who are, um, uh, who, who are the ones who are going out into rural and regional areas in, in Australia or going overseas and making those links. And so that's why we think they're, they're deserving of, of extra support and not at the expense of anyone else. It should be additional support. If you've just tuned in, we're speaking to Adam Bant, the member for Melbourne and the Greens arts spokesperson. Uh, and we're talking arts policy in the lead-up to the federal election on the 2nd of July. And I'm in, uh, I've already confirmed an interview with uh, the Shadow Minister for the Arts, uh, uh, the Labor arts spokesperson, in a couple of weeks' time. Uh, and I'm going to chase up the arts party as well. Um, we have been chasing... Uh, the uh, current Minister for the Arts, but uh, haven't been able to secure an interview with him yet. Fingers crossed. We'll see how we go. Speaking of the Arts Party, though, Adam, I believe the Greens have borrowed a policy.
policy from them. Yeah, we have. We I had a good chat with um, one of the people from the Arts Party a while ago who who made what I thought was a very valid point, which is we've got a science week. Um, why don't we have an arts week? And I, I think it's a great idea. So we um, are going to push that in Parliament and uh, we would like to see a small amount of money put aside to promote that. But I think if we um, start... To, if we had an arts week around the country, it might start to address some of those, as you said, you know, maybe public objections about, oh, well, why are we supporting artists? Shouldn't they be able to pay their own way? We'd be able to say, well look what it does for the country and um, it's, it's as important to us as some of those other um, approaches that we're taking at the moment. We talk a lot about STEAM, science, technology, engineering, maths and I'm a big, big advocate and I'm the green science spokesperson as well but others have said, well, we need to start turning STEM into STEAM, you know, adding add A for the arts. So um, I think there's a, uh, a big case for at a national cultural level, saying we're going to start talking about arts in the same way as we talk about other areas of, um, of cultural endeavour. If only we could talk about art in the same way that the country talks about sport, then I'd be a very happy man. For example. Yeah. Uh, Adam, we're going to have to wrap it up there. It's been a pleasure having you on the show. Um, look, I guess oh, just before you go, uh, any kind of final statement you want to make as to kind of why you think people should be voting green in this election? Look, I'd love it to get to the point where in the future no government ever wants to touch the arts, arts budget. And, I mean, there are some areas of spending, like defence, that seem to be sacrosanct. And if anyone ever talks about cutting it, they, you, you fear you'd lose votes and potentially lose your seat. I'd love it to get to the point where... Um, politicians across the political spectrum think nope, we can't touch the arts budget, we can't go and muck around with the independence of funding and uh, and try and politicise it and I think the the, the Greens, I think we, we judge our success if we've been able to increase funding to the arts, make life as an artist a bit more secure um, but also put arts higher up on a pedestal so that no one ever again feels like they can do what this government's just done. If you'd like to know more about the Greens arts policy and the lead up to the election on the 2nd of July to keep yourself informed go to greens.org.au forward slash arts adam bant been a pleasure having you on Thanks, the show Richard. hi i'm patty smith this is bert newton hey this is karen oh i'm sam from interpol i'm carlos from interpol this is martha wainwright alex from the orb and you're listening to a triple r archive on rrr.org.au <laughs> It's been known as the Melbourne International Arts Festival over the years. Now it's just the Melbourne Festival. Then you may well have seen uh, the Israeli dance company Batsheva performing live. They're a, a phenomenal company led by artistic director Ohad Naran. Now there is a new documentary about Ohad and the company uh, called Mr Gaga that uh, is having a limited release in Victoria from the 30th of June at Cinema Nova with a special event tonight at Cinema Nova a Q&A with the director of the film who joins me in the studio now, Toma Heyman. Welcome to Triple R. Hello, hello, Shalom. Very exciting to be in a beautiful spot, by the way. It's a, we're pretty lucky to have a nice station like this. So, uh, yeah, but, uh, and a nice city as well, I have to say. And, and for me, Melbourne's connect to my uh, private history because um, when I created my first movie ever, it was 2001, 
the first invitation I ever got from a film festival was by the Melbourne International Film Festival. They called me, it was not email yet, and it was no email, and they told me, we want you to come to Melbourne. I say, where is it? How many hours? What are I supposed to do? They say, don't worry, don't worry, we'll take care about you. I came here. I was in love with two persons here in this town. And um, later on, when I was on my way to the airport, I got a phone call from the Melbourne Film Festival and say, come back, you got the prize. So the first prize ever in my life belonged to this town. Oh, well. And now, 14 years later, I'm coming with, with my biggest complex uh, um, project called Mr. Gaga about uh, Ohad Narin and Bacheva Dance Company. And what I discover since I'm here, I was in um, Canberra in Sydney, and now I'm here tonight in Melbourne, that is quite a big community that knowing very well the Bacheva Dance Company and waiting to this movie because this movie in some way um, discover and give you the ability to know who is the guy behind the name of Hadnarin. Even in Israel, some friend, colleague, dancer, came to me and told me, a, a, a dancer that danced in the company for 15 years, came to me after the premiere and said, you know, Tomer, I can tell you honestly, only now I start to understand who is the guy called Ohad Narin. And he saw him every day and every morning he spent with him 10 hours. Because Ohad was protect himself and create his self-image about himself. Let's not talk about private life. Let's not talk about history. And Mr. Gaga, in some way, give you the, the, a very deep angle to the history of this man from the day he was born till today, which is, is age is 64. To me, the sign of a successful documentary, particularly if it's a documentary about an individual person, is that, like reading a good biography, watching uh, a good documentary leaves me feeling like I know the person in some way. I have an insight into them and their character. And clearly, for the, the dancers in Batsheva Dance Company, your documentary has done that, has kind of peeled away the, the, the layers to reveal the, the more private person beneath. I think that's the reason it took me so long, eight years, so it's not a miracle that one day I woke up in the morning and say, I want to make a movie about Rad Narin. Basically, my fantasy about doing this project starts 25 years ago, when I was really, really young, with 21. And, and uh, I exposed to one of the creation of Bacheva Dance Company. And basically, it was the first time ever I saw a dance uh, piece in my life. And that was a moment... Can I ask you if in your history, in your life, was a moment that art influenced or inspired you so strongly? Can you remember about turning point in your life that something was so big in your life? Absolutely, yes. I saw a, the uh, Royal Shakespeare Company's production of Richard III in 1984. Uh, Anthony Sher playing Richard III on crutches, scuttling around. And there was, there was something about his performance, about the production, that was just transformative. It remains one of those great magical artistic moments of my life. So, yes, I, I, I can understand the... the, the that it, it, it feels like an arrow has hit you. There's this thump and a, and a resonance and a vibration that stays with you forever. So this is something that will stay for me forever. And since then, I, I, every year I went to see the new creation by Oad Narin. And I want to share with you also, also something that came to my mind on the way here by the taxi. I thought about a lot of what's happened in Orlando, you know, like this 50 people were killed this, uh, from the gay community. And I'm gay, gay by myself. And around the year 92, 
I was deep in the closet. I was in Israel. I was afraid about the idea that I'm, what I'm doing with this family, friend, no one will really, all this issue about, and we're talking about many years ago before the queer revolution, and I went to see a creation another creation by what now called Flood Mabul. And in this creation, and you're going to see it, Mr. Gaga, in the movies, is two female dancers who kiss to each other. Beautifully, softly, you, you see these two uh, female dancers on stage, and I remember the impact it had on my life as a young man about my sexuality, my gender. So what I try to tell you is that my connection to my character in this movie, first of all, starts from um, a place that someone opened me the door to love dance. And this is something really, really, you know, like uh, my life will be really looking really different without this uh, dating or well, meeting in 1991. And 17 years later, when I came to Bacheva Dance Company and asked him to, to the ability to create a movie about Adnarin, the reaction was, forget about it. He will never let you to create this movie. It was very clear. You're going to spend your time for nothing. And I say, but it's, it's not make sense. He was 57. He already created his name as a good, amazing choreographer. And people need to know about him. And when I met Oad Narin, he told me, it, he tried to explain something, which I think it's part of the movie. He told me, Tomer, you know why I'm against create a documentary about dance? Because this is the opposite of what I believe. Dance is about vanishing. Dance is about disappearing. Dance not stay with you. And, and doing this movie, in some way, it will stay forever. So that was the first conversation with my character, Adnarin. It was a very interesting dialogue. And one of the other challenges also is not just the fact that dance, like any live performance, is ephemeral, that it's, it's there in front of you one moment and then afterwards it's gone and all you have is memory. The other challenge is that for a documentary to try and capture a sense of the, the magic of a live performance. When I watch a work on film, even uh, often when it's immaculately and beautifully filmed, it still doesn't have the magic of the live performance. So talk to us from a, the point of view of a documentary filmmaker. How challenging was it to try and capture the essence of dance on screen? I realise, and it took me time, that I need to find a very unique and special style of, of doing this movie that offer you something else. Because it's a show, as you say, it's beautiful. And I even don't see a reason just to put the camera on this classic uh, big frame and to catch it. For this, pay a ticket and go to the Opera of Sydney or in Melbourne Theatre Place and watch it. What I try to do with my cameraman, and at the beginning we fight about it, and, and I remember myself watching after one week of shooting, I went home to see the footage and I have a headache. And I came back to my, the day after to my cameraman and said, you create me a headache. You're not my cameraman. I'm going to, to a mental hospital after I see what you're shooting. He said, Tom, I don't understand what you want from me. And then I told him his name is Itai. Itai. We need to be brave enough and to be in a different spot, different angle that usually... As someone who is sitting and watching a, a performance, you're not allowed. You're not allowed to be in the center of stage and decide that you're going to be focused on the back of a dancer. And if you come to see Mr. Gaga, some of the beautiful visual aspects in this movie that the camera offer you to look on this choreography from a different angle. 
And and I want to tell you something else that influenced the movie and, 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 and brought me to a big problem, but later on I think make this project much more interesting, that I got a boxes, I'm talking about 600 hours by boxes, with archive footage. So it's not only that I need to deal what you mentioned right now, how to capture the dance, also slowly, slowly I discover, wow, this man have very special story. Can I can I show with you his, a little bit his biography? Please. Um, do you know usually when dancers start to dance? If if I will ask you, what's the age to start to be a professional dancer? Um, some people may start training uh, to be a professional dancer at four or five, for example. For five and seven, eight, it's already start to be ladies. They tend the maximum. This man, he was twenty two. And he was after uh, t- being a part of the 73 war in Israel, which was a very tough war, 73. All his friends were killed in the war. You see it in the movie. You get a very strong archive that he's singing to his friend. And later on, all of them not with us anymore. So after serving the, the Israeli army, 22, he was discovered by Martha Graham. You know what, who is Martha Graham? Martha Graham, yes, I do. So can you share something to your people, what it means to meet Martha Graham, 73, in Israel, and she took him to New York for a young generation to understand what it means that the legend of modern dance come to Israel and choose one dancer? It, it, would, like, uh, it would be the equivalent of being uh, a young musician and being handpicked by Stravinsky, for yeah. example. yeah. yeah. So think about Stravinsky chooses and, and take him from Melbourne, I don't know where, somewhere. So he found himself in New York. And after a few months that everyone told him, wow, you are with Martha Graham. You are in, in the best hand. He realized that he's empty. He's not happy. And I can tell you, with, after a long time that I talked with a dancer from New York, that most of the dancer prefer to stay in this safe zone and not to leave Martha Graham. And Ohad Narin told to Martha Graham, and later on he shared it in the movie, you know, Tomer, the most important thing is that this movie needs to send message to young artists, young dancers, young people, young people in the radio. You know, think about you. What was your age when you arrived to the radio? Uh, uh, it was... I, I started getting involved in radio at Triple R in 1993. So, uh, and you have moments with your life with conflict, how to do it with your own style. You felt maybe someone take you to a mainstream road and you don't like it and you need to find your own style. Luckily, I've never had to try and do mainstream radio. I've been here in the community radio sector where there's a lot of freedom to be individual and to speak with your own voice. So from your beginning, you found your own voice. But I, through the movies, through Mr. Gaga, you see a young dancer fight for his own way and and basically say go against the mainstream go against the society and don't trust your easy way and later on when he's he's coming to israel everyone is afraid from him and everyone uh, uh, told me you know when this this person came to to batsheva dance company the first things he did before the revolution of dance he say all the salary are equal and maybe now for you it's look maybe it makes sense for you and it's obvious for you because you know you are here from in this special radio but in israel the company someone earned one million dollar and someone earned one thousand dollar do you understand it makes sense yeah. but now in say it's not make sense everyone going to earn the same amount of money 
And slowly, slowly, he built Batsheva Dance Company as a big name. Going back to the, to the second meeting with Ohad Narin, he told me, Tomer, but I want to tell you, I'm not letting you to shoot in the studio. This is too intimate moment. This is too private. And I told him, Ohad, if I'm not coming to the studio with my camera, I'm not going to create this movie. And, and he told me, come to, to see Come to, to me doing a sex and love with my girlfriend, and it's no problem for me. See me naked at shower time, I don't care about it. But coming to see how I work with my dancer in this magic room, and, and once we, 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 we break the door and we jump into the, the studio of Batsheva Dance Company, that's brought the movie. That's, I think, in one of the five top scenes in Mystery Gaga belong to this idea that you jump into the mind of Oad Narin. That's what I want to try to do with this movie. People who never heard about Oad Narin, about this Israeli artist, I offer them, come to the cinema, and you discover a genius, and you almost, I give you the ability to go inside of his mind. The film, Mr. Gaga, is having a screening tonight at Cinema Nova uh, at 6.30pm, a uh, screening and a Q&A session, which is going to be conducted uh, by uh, Gideon Obazanik, uh, the former artistic director of Chunky Move Dance Company and a, a fantastic choreographer. And then it is in limited release at Cinema Nova from June 30. Uh, just to let you know, if, you would, if you're wondering, how does Mr. Gaga stand up as a film? Variety magazine, the, the kind of screen Bible uh, industry, Bible in the US called it possibly the most exciting documentary for fans of edgier modern dance since Peanut, which was uh, a remarkable film about Peanut Bausch, the late great Peanut Bausch. So, Mr. Gaga, tonight, 6.30pm at Cinema Nova and then in limited release from June 30th, exclusive to Cinema Nova, uh, directed by Torma Hammond. Thank you so much for joining us here in the studio. Thank you, I enjoyed it really much and I will be back again, hopefully soon. Triple R. For complete access to the Triple R archives, which include over 100 interviews, live-to-air performances, documentaries and other Triple R specials, become a subscriber via the link on our website. Thanks for listening to Triple R.